This is a free download from Delancey Elam Church. We meet every Sunday morning at 10.30am in the Delancey Elam Church building. At Le Banks, St. Sampson's in the Channel Island of Guernsey. To contact us or find out more information about us, please visit our website at delanceyelam.co.uk. I'm not on the cross and the victory of the cross this morning. I've kind of feeling actually that often... This has been, as far as I've been preparing this, it almost has been so difficult in some ways to really prepare this because I just feel the enemy, if there's one sermon the enemy doesn't want you to hear, this is probably this sermon this morning. I want to really just bring out the power of the cross and over the next few weeks, I want to talk about the victory of the cross. And it's often amazing, often in these days, that the cross is sometimes almost rarely mentioned. It's almost like, and the blood and the cross has almost been kind of removed from, often uh, from the, the, the from the church today and so we, it's great to remind ourselves of the victory of the cross the power of the blood so we're going to look at it in different ways this morning incidentally is this prayer meeting on Saturday morning I'm in to say amen yeah okay 8 o'clock just, just seeing you there reminding me brother how's that okay uh, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 14 I said before I want to talk about what I call the divine exchange I want to call the divine exchange that I we're going to look at this one. There's eight exchanges that took place on the cross. And we're going to look at each one of those exchanges of the cross. But let's just commence by reading Hebrews 10, verse 14. It says, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Just that one phrase there. For by one offering. Let's just pray. Father, we just want to thank you today for the victory of the cross. And I pray, Lord, that we can maybe grasp it mentally or theologically, but I pray in many ways today that, Lord, that, that our hearts would receive revelation of the victory of the cross. Lord, I pray today, bring revelation to our hearts today by your Holy Spirit. Reveal to us the totality of your victory, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Derek Prince, how many have heard of Derek Prince? He's one of the real great uh, Pentecostal, if you like, theologians. Uh, gone to be with the Lord now. Great ministry. One of the real great Bible teachers of our, of our generation. He said something I thought was really powerful. He said, at the cross, Satan suffered an eternal permanent defeat. And there is nothing he can do to overturn the defeat he suffered at the cross. Isn't that powerful? Nothing the devil can do to overturn the victory of the cross. Oh, that's just awesome. I always put a smile on your face this morning. I know the condor fed is not working, but never mind. You know, but that's, that's an awesome thing. The, 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 the victory of the cross is so amazing. There's nothing the devil can do, anything he can do to overturn that victory. But what he does do, and this is what I wanted to phrase, that he blinds us. He wants to blind us, put a veil over our eyes, so that we don't really see the real victory of the cross. See, we can wear a cross, we can sing songs about the cross, but not really grasp the sheer awesome power of the cross. Because I think once you see really what's really took place at the cross, it just brings you to new levels of victory, new levels of liberty, new levels of freedom. We kind of, and I think what the enemy wants to do is to blind us, to, to, to put a veil over our eyes that really prevents us from seeing how totally victorious the cross is. And here we're told in Hebrews that the one sacrifice that Jesus Christ made at the cross means that God has provided for every need, 
for time and eternity for every believer for every for all time for all eternity and here's the real truth of that verse how many realize there's nothing more that Jesus can do he's done it all absolutely totally completely he has done it all It's totally and utterly complete. One sacrifice. We can't add to it. We can't take away from it. It is one complete sacrifice once and for all. And the awesome power of this is that through it, God's got this amazing storehouse. And in that storehouse is everything we need spiritually, physically, emotionally and materially. Just when you get a picture of this amazing storehouse that God has available to us. And you can see a storehouse. So every need you have, whether it be spiritual, physical, material, emotional, is right there in this storehouse. This storehouse of God. I remember one of the first jobs I had, there used to be, they used to have a storekeeper, they used to call him, a storekeeper. So any time, if you wanted a tool or anything, you go to the storekeeper and he'd give you the tool. Now, for, I used to feel sorry for those younger princes because I used to play jokes on them. Things like, go and get a book to steam. <laughs> or, or, or get a, left, a left-hand screwdriver. <laughs> or, or go for a long wait. Can I identify those? Yeah, some of them. And so, you know, they used to play all kinds of tricks on them when they went to the storehouse. But the Holy Spirit, if you like, he is the keeper of a storehouse. He, because he administers the will of Jesus Christ. He's the administrator of the will of Jesus. And what the Holy Spirit does, he's like the, he's like the executive. How many have heard of an executive of will? The executive of the will has to make sure that everybody in that will receives what is, put, what is in that inheritance. That's what the administrator of a will does. That's what the executive of the will does. He makes sure that everyone in that will receives the benefits of that will. And the Holy Spirit is an administrator. He's the executor of the will of Jesus Christ. He brings into our lives what Jesus did at the cross. He opened this amazing storehouse. As I see this storehouse, there's a key that opens the door of this storehouse. It's the shape of the cross. And the cross if you like, is the key that opens the storehouse so all these amazing benefits that God has made available to us are administered to us by the Holy Spirit. And we think that's amazing already. Now, at the cross, there was an exchange. People term it the divine exchange. We often sing a song about the divine exchange. And that's what took place at the cross. There was a divine exchange. You know what exchange is? You know, you give someone something, they give something back to you. I remember when I was young. The car, I remember I used to have cards. Remember those cards? And you used to have a, a bubble gum and you used to have a card. All these cards. You used to have Batman. I remember collecting the Batman one. And you'd get everyone except maybe one card missing. And literally, you'd trade anything to get that card, as crazy it was. I mean, you'd literally, you'd sell anything to get one card to complete your set. Because there was this exchange. People would always exchange things. And, and on the cross, there was this incredible exchange that took place. And there's this incredible exchange that took place. 
all the evil that was due to the human race was placed on Jesus. And all the good that was due to Jesus through his obedience and through his sacrifice is given to all who put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? A divine exchange. All the evil that was due to us and the consequences was due to us was placed on Jesus. And all the good that was due to him has been given to us. And that's what I mean by a divine exchange. Isn't that awesome, the cross? And really the Bible declares there are eight exchanges. Eight exchanges that took place on the cross. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that word iniquity means guilt and rebellion and, and all the consequences of that were laid on Jesus so that we might receive all the benefits of Jesus Christ. Now let me look at these eight exchanges this morning. Here's the first one. Jesus was punished for our sin that we might receive his forgiveness. Ephesians 1 verse 7. And some of these are kind of fairly basic truths. But let's look at the real truth. What, Ephesians 1 verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. He receives our punishment so we might receive his forgiveness. Now, I don't want you to get a hold of the word forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't just mean that God kind of forgets about it. What forgiveness here means is that God doesn't just forget about it, he removes it as if it never existed in the first place. There is no evidence that it ever, ever existed. And you'll find that one of the primary works of the enemy is to remind you of your failure, to remind you of your past sin, to remind you of past mistakes and guilt. That's what the enemy does. He wants to remind you of your past sin. He wants to remind you of your past failures. He wants to remind you where you've messed up. But when I understand the power of forgiveness, it reminds me that by the blood of Jesus, he has already dealt with it. In God's eyes, the moment I confess it, it's as if it's never existed or never happened. As far as the east is from the west, so the Lord has removed our sins from us. How many realise that east and west never meet together? Is that right? Totally and utterly removed. And I think a lot of people live their lives paralysed by the past. Paralysed by past failures, past mistakes, past sins. And it almost it paralyzes their life. They can never move forward. They can never move into all the benefits of God because they are so paralyzed by the sins and mistakes of the past. 
That's why the Bible says something amazing. It says, by the blood of Jesus, we have peace with God. How do you know if you receive the first benefit? Shall I tell you how? Because the one result of knowing that you've been forgiven is that you should have peace in your heart. If you have disturbance, if you have disharmony in your heart, if you are disturbed continually within your heart, then you've never truly had a revelation of the power of forgiveness. The Bible says the devil is the accuser of the brethren. That's what he's continually accusing you. But when you know the power of the blood and you've been forgiven, he has no room for accusation. Is that right? Because you realise at the cross the amazing exchange. Jesus took my sin and and gave me his forgiveness. What an exchange is. Here's the second one. The second thing that took place on the cross. He was wounded so I might be healed. Jesus on the cross took our sicknesses. Matthew chapter 8. Here, if you like, Matthew is quoting Isaiah 53. And he's showing that That verse is fulfilled through Jesus. Jesus is healing the sick, casting out devils. He's healing all who came to him. And Matthew declares that that Jesus was healing the sick to fulfill what took place. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Matthew 8, sorry, verse 16. When evening had come, They brought him many who were demon-possessed. He cast out spirits with a word. He healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. I personally, I really do, I personally believe that healing is in the atonement. I really believe there's healing in the cross. Let me tell you one more verse, 1 Peter 2. Verse 24. And these are scriptures for you to go back on this morning and, and you meditate on these. I think it's a, a great basis to base our healing upon. I don't think there's a greater basis than the cross and what Jesus did on the cross. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we have died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. How many realise when you read that it's in past tense, is that right? Past tense. Every benefit you receive from the every benefit you receive has already been done, has already been won at the cross. It's not something in the future. It's already been achieved. Jesus has already forgiven us. Jesus has already died for our sins. He's already, if you like, healed our diseases. What we need to do is appropriate what he's done. And that's a progressive thing, where we are progressively coming into the benefits of the cross. And I just feel very much that 
a need again to, to come a revelation, a, a stirring in the hearts of God's people again about the power of healing. That Jesus is a healer. The four square Pentecostal, if you like, alliance that the Pentecostal churches are, bo- are, are, are born on is what they call, it's, it's the four square. And the four square is this, that Jesus is king or coming king, he's baptizer, he's saviour, but also he is healer. That's the four square. That is the, the original four square declaration that the Pentecostal churches stood on, the four square gospel. And I think we need to somehow get back to that revelation that Jesus is healer. In fact, the inter- interesting thing is when you look at that, that the word heal that Peter uses there is the same word we use for doctor. That Jesus is a healer. And on the cross, he took our sicknesses. He took our pain. And there's something about that revelation coming alive in your heart that realizes the basis for healing. Can you say amen to that? Isn't that wonderful? Here's the third thing. 2 Corinthians 5. Jesus has made sin with our sinfulness that we might receive his righteousness. That's the third exchange on the cross. Jesus became sin so that we might receive his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 22. Say verse 21. How many found there's no 22 there? <laughs> For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in us. Isaiah 53 again talks about that Jesus was a sin offering. You know what a sin offering was? When you sinned, you got an animal. And you took that animal to the priest. It was a sin offering. And what the priest would do is the priest would lay his hands on on that animal, that innocent animal. He'd lay his hands on that animal and then he would kill the animal. When the priest laid his hands on the animal, he was symbolically transferring the sin of the person onto the animal. And then the animal would be killed, showing that the wages of sin is death. But how many glad the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ? And so Jesus became a sin offering. Now, the blood of animals could not remove sin, it could only cover it. But the blood of Jesus is so awesome and so powerful, it doesn't just remove the, it doesn't just cover the sin, it removes it forever. And so the Bible says that, that, that Jesus who knew no sin became sin. That's very hard for us to grasp. But on the cross, Jesus took all the sin of the world, was placed upon him, and he actually became sin. He absorbed the sin of the world into his body. That's hard for us to grasp, but that's what the Bible declares took place. So he took our sin, and here's the incredible transfer. He gives to us his righteousness. That means you don't become 50% righteous. You don't become 75% righteous. You become totally righteous. 
We use the term imputed righteousness. It's righteousness that's imputed to you as a free gift. Now here's the challenge. Legally we are made righteous. The goal is to transfer what we received legally by the blood of Jesus and begin to live that out on a day-to-day experience. Here's the point. If you don't really know you're righteous, the truth is you'll probably never be able to live righteously. But when you know you've got a revelation that I am the righteousness of God, the reality is you begin to live that life out. So on the cross, he took our punishment. He was judged for our sin that we might become, that we might receive. Not our righteousness, but we might receive what? His righteousness. How many would say that's a powerful righteousness to receive? Here's the third thing. Fourth thing, sorry. He tasted death so that we might receive life. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and you might have life, what? More abundantly. In other words, the life that Jesus offers is a life that isn't just if you like, quantity isn't just quantity, but it's also quality of life. The highest form of life. I've come that you might have life, and you might have life abundantly. The Jesus on the cross took all the different dimensions of death. Every dimension of death Jesus took on himself. So that we might enter into all the dimensions of life. I just think, the Greek word for life is the, word, is the Greek word zoe, zoe, which actually means eternal life, life, eternal life, the life of God. Henry would just think that's so amazing that you have a life that's eternal, a life that lives forever. That Jesus absorbed death so that you could come into total life. You can go to heaven. You can receive eternal life because Jesus took your death that you might receive his life. As we think about the resurrection, the Bible says for 40 days, Jesus proved himself he was alive. 500 people witnessed the truth of his resurrection. I think one of the great foundations of Christianity is the resurrection. It's an histori- I believe it's the great historical facts. And often, the way that often debates go, that the, the, the real truth of the resurrection is the most powerful tool we have. Because the fact is, if Jesus didn't rise again from the dead, then everything else is totally irrelevant. And it's a great argument when we talk and prove that Jesus rose again. A famous lawyer, years and years ago, actually wrote, he was going to write a book to prove or disprove the resurrection of Jesus. That's what he, he set out to do as a, as a lawyer. He was going to Use the evidence as, a, as you would a law of court, a, a, a court of law. And he wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone? And the more he read into it, the more he researched it, he realized the truth of the resurrection and became a Christian. Isn't that amazing? Because it is such an incredible fact when you really study it, when you really look at all the evidence of it. And that same resurrection life, the Bible says the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in us. One of the greatest displays of God's power was when he raised Christ from the dead. And that same power, the Bible says, has now been given to us. All because of the cross. Can you say amen?
Here's the fifth thing. Jesus was made a curse so that you might receive a blessing. Look at this, Galatians 3 verse 14. And afterwards, we're going to pray for people regarding this afterwards, but let me just bring this home to you. Galatians 3 verse 14. Verse 13, sorry. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessings of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Isn't that awesome? Jesus became a curse on the cross so that we might enter into the blessings. Incidentally, there are, there are three components of the Abrahamic blessing. First one was, 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 was an evelation that God lifted him up. Second one was possession or ownership. The third part of the blessing was he had dominion. That speaks of victory that he's brought to us through the cross. Now you'll find a whole list of curses right there in Deuteronomy 28. There's a whole list of curses. I want to read to you, again, getting back to Derek Prince, I want to read, he, he made such an amazing definition of a curse. Have you thought what a curse is? What is a curse? And here's, I love what Derek Prince, this is the way he, de, he defined a curse. And I think some of us will relate to this as I share it. A curse is something like a dark shadow or an evil hand from the pre- past oppressing you, pressing you down, holding you back, tripping you up, propelling you in a direction you do not really want to take. It is like a negative atmosphere that surrounds you, which seems to be stronger at some times than others, but from which you are never totally free. And he goes on to share seven indications of what possibly could be a curse. Some, some, of, these, some of these things are, are indications. It doesn't mean... You have them just in total. I'm talking about, you have them as a, a continuation of them, a repeated issue of them in your life. They repeat all the time. Not just happens once, but they're repeated things. You, you see a cycle of them. You see them repeated all the time. And these are the seven things that he kind of uses as a repeat. He says, number one, mental or emotional breakdown. Number two, repeated or chronic sicknesses, especially if they're hereditary and with a clear medical diagnosis. Number three, remember these are repeated things, not one-off repeated things. Repeated miscarriages or related female problems or barrenness. Number four, a history of family breakdowns. Throughout the families, it just continues. Number five, continual financial insufficiency, especially when income appears sufficient. Number six, being accident-prone. Number seven, a history of suicides or unnatural deaths in the family. Now here's the great news. You can break every curse because we have been redeemed from it. So we inherit what? The, the blessings. Now sometimes the, the things in our life and the enemy comes in various ways against us. We need to learn sometimes to resist the devil. We need to resist him. And in this area sometimes we need to resist and fight. think about it, if a thief came into your house, he doesn't say to himself, oh, I've got no legal right to go there, so I'm not going to break into the house. I've got no legal right to go there. 
maybe in kind of Guernsey, it's probably not sort of a known thing, but in other parts of the country, you know, you, there's all kinds of stuff you do to stop breakings and things. Because a thief isn't going to say, you know what, I'm not going to break into that house because I've got no legal right to be there. Is that right? He'll break in because he's a thief. And he, wanna, he will steal your goods unless he is resisted. And that's the same with the, with the works of darkness. That's the same with, 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 the, with the attacks and things of the enemy. He has to be resisted. We have to resist the enemy. We need to make sure that, that, that we're going to resist his attacks. We're going to resist the things he comes against us with. Even though he has no legal right, he has to be rebuked. And we're going to pray over that area as we towards the end of the service. Here's the sixth thing. Jesus endured shame so we might receive his glory. I love this part here. Do you know when Jesus was crucified? Roman crucifixion meant they hung people naked. After many artists portrayed Jesus on the cross with a a loincloth, but the fact of the matter is, when he hung on a cross, he hung naked. Because part of crucifixion was, was the means to humiliate someone. They meant to do the highest form of humiliation which they could do. So they would hang them on the cross naked to humiliate them, to make them ashamed, if you like. That's what they would do. That cross, and it wasn't, we often get this picture, the cross was you know, so high up, but it wasn't that far off the ground. And the reason why they did that was so people could spit at you. And, and we see many occasions in the Bible where, where they mocked Jesus. We know Roman soldiers spat on him. If you've ever been spit upon, it's almost the, the, the biggest form of shame that you can feel when someone spits on you. It really is. Jesus was covered with the spit of thousands of hundreds of Roman soldiers. They spit on him. They covered him in spit as a sign of, to shame someone, to humiliate someone. That's what they did it for. And on the cross, Jesus experienced incredible shame. Incidentally, that's why, because he hung naked on the cross, that many of the disciples were told stood far off because they didn't want to, if you like, to, to, to disrespect him, to dishonor him in that way. And Jesus took our shame. And I think a lot of people can experience shame. Jesus took our shame so that we could experience his glory. And so many people can experience shame. It can come through abuse. If you've ever experienced abuse, that leaves a sense of shame. It can come through bullying, where you were bullied. And you thought maybe there was something in you that caused that bullying to take place in your life and it left you with a a real sense of shame. Maybe something that someone did to you made you feel ashamed of what they did to you betrayal in some way, left you with a sense of shame. Or maybe something you've done and it's left you with a sense of shame because you don't feel you can be forgiven for what you've done. And there's this sense of shame that's in your heart, in your life. 
And what shame to us. Guilt is what you do. Shame is when you internalise it. Guilt is what you do, but shame is what you feel you are. You never feel good enough. You always feel unworthy. You always feel unlovable. And no matter what you do, you never ever really feel good enough. And even though people may have done this to you, here's the danger. We begin to portray or reflect that unto God. And so we live our lives trying to earn God's approval, trying to earn God's favour, trying to perform so God will accept us. But Jesus took your shame. He suffered physical abuse. He carried your shame so that you could share in his glory. You don't anymore. I think a lot of people do this. They walk around feeling a third-rate person. They never admit it. They never even give expression to it. Deep in their hearts, they always feel a second-rate, third-rate person. Because the shame grips their hearts so deeply. I'm glad to tell you this morning the good news that Jesus took our shame on the cross so that we can share in his glory. Isn't that amazing? Let me read you a, a great verse from Isaiah 54, verse 4. And it's, it's from the, the, new, the, new, the New Living Translation. It says, Don't be afraid because you will not be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed because you won't be disgraced. You will forget the shame that you felt. Forget the shame that you felt. I just love that. You don't have to let shame grip your heart or eternalize in your life because Jesus died to remove your shame. Here's number seven, very quickly. Jesus endured our rejection so that we might receive his acceptance. Again, I think one of the most deepest wounds of the human heart. Incidentally, have you noticed that Jesus, we're talking about here about emotional pain, The cross deals with emotional stuff and emotional pain as well as other things. I think one of the deepest forms, the deepest wounds of the human heart is is rejection. And it's interesting that when people feel rejected, it demands rejection. You begin to act and drive people to cause you to reject you. More rejection there, the more you kind of bring that upon yourself as well. Almost a rejected person is someone who's, who's on the outside kind of looking in. And rejection can come through a betrayal. It can come by a parent. It can come from a person of authority. Someone close to you. In some way you wasn't affirmed. You were left out. You were, you were let down. You were failed in some incredibly big way. Maybe somebody you trusted. Someone you were close to. Someone you were near to. Just left this incredible sense of betrayal. And you felt a deep sense of rejection. And people can be rejected by all kinds of people. Parents, other friends, close friends, teachers, partners. All kinds of people can, can leave that pain in our lives. And it begins to have such a hold and such a grip on them. This spirit of rejection that can get in. I want you to turn to Ephesians 1.6 because here is the, the answer to rejection is to know acceptance. If you know you're accepted, it removes the rejection. 
And Jesus was rejected so that you might be accepted. I love Ephesians 1.6. It says, To the praise the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. In other words, there is no other place for acceptance than through his Son. In fact, the original word for it, the word accepted is derived from the word grace. God doesn't tolerate you. He accepts you. Jesus was rejected so that we could be accepted. Here's the problem. Unless we find our acceptance in God, we will look for it in other ways. We will look for that wound to be healed by false things that we think will give us acceptance that we think will, will, will heal the wound of rejection. We look, we look for other means and other ways to deal with a rejected heart, to deal with a rejected spirit. But the best way to deal with rejection is to know you've been accepted by God. Accepted in the Beloved. On the cross, Jesus cried these words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you rejected me? Now, it's very interesting. That is probably one of the only times that Jesus uses the word, my God, my God. Every other time, he uses the term Father. Here he says, my God the Father, my God the Holy Spirit, why have you rejected me? For the first time ever, Jesus knew what it felt like to be separated from God. As he became sin, God could no longer look on the sin, so God, if you like, had to turn his back from him, and he knew the pain, not just by being rejected of men, but God himself turning his back on him. And Jesus experienced the the, the total depth of rejection so that we could experience acceptance with God. That's why the great declaration was that when he died on the cross, the veil, we're told, was torn in two. From, notice this, from top to bottom. And God was saying, now I accept you. You're accepted in the beloved. God accepts you. He's opened the way. That's why the Bible says we come boldly to the throne of grace. Because the veil has been rent in two and now we know we have acceptance with God. Can you say amen? Here's the last one and I'll quickly touch on this one. Jesus endured poverty that we might receive abundance. 2 Corinthians 8. 2 Corinthians 8. I haven't really got time to go into this because I want to just close in a moment. But 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. It says, For we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that through, though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, that, through, that, you, that, that you through his poverty might become rich. Just to say that on the Deuteronomy 8, gives, declares what, we don't really know what poverty is today, is that right? But Deuteronomy, if you've got time, look at this afterwards, Deuteronomy 28, 48, says, describes poverty in three ways. It's thirst, hunger, nakedness, and want of all things. How many realise where on the cross Jesus was naked, he thirsted, and he hungered. And he experienced the true depths of poverty 
that we might experience his abundance. Now let me just say this. That does not mean that you're going to drive around in a Rolls Royce and you're going to live on Fort George. And we realize there's been an incredible, 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 twisted idea of this. But this is what I think true abundance is. This is my definition of it. It's where God meets your needs and, and, uh, and above it, not so that you can accumulate, but so you can bless somebody else. Is that right? You're blessed so you can be a blessing. And so God, in a sense, wants to, if you like, to meet needs, to, to prosper in certain ways, but it's not just so you've got, and it's incredible, you know, this affluent lifestyle, so that you can be a blessing to someone else. If you really see poverty in its full workings, I know those guys and Nicole and Lynn, those guys we to, to come be able to place that you see the, the full weight of poverty and the destruction power of it. But God blesses us so that we can release resources and bless people in that condition. You say amen. So just remember that. This is not about accumulation, but, but causing you to be a blessing. That's what God said to Abraham. You will be blessed so that you can be what a blessing. So anyway, I haven't got time to go down too detail, but let me just say all these things, eight things that Jesus did on the cross, eight things that Jesus did on the cross. But here's the point. If all that's true, how do we live in the truth of it? How do we appropriate it? How do we come into the reality of it? Because we can know all the truth of it, but how do we appropriate it? Let's go a few things to see how we do this very quickly. First thing, sometimes we maybe we need to repent. Maybe things that are a barrier, a wall to you receiving what God wants to give to you. Maybe there's things that you need to get out of your life to put right with God so you open the door of the storehouse to receive it. Because if there are blockages in us, then the store gate can't be opened. Amen? But the moment we put these things right, we reopen the gates. That's why repentance is such a blessing because it opens the way for God to do what he wants to do in our life. Second thing is believe. Put your faith this morning in what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Believe it. Put faith in it. Really believe that these scriptures are true. And put your faith, put your trust in these things. Third thing is renounce. Renounce every work of the enemy against your life. I think we need to learn to renounce and, and, and renounce. The Bible says resist the devil and he what what? from you. Renounce the, his work in your life. Renounce the things he's coming against you with. Renounce areas where you see darkness and things contrary to his word coming against you. And there's the fourth and last thing. Confess. I see more and more declare the victory of Jesus. Revelation 10 verse 11 or 12 I think it says. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and what? The word of their testimony. They testified to what the blood of Jesus had done for them. They testified to it. I've got some friends at the moment really going through a real, real hard time. Just incredible things have, have rose up and it's just been a very painful time for them to speak to me the other day. And, and what they said to me, so what we're doing, no matter how hard, and this has gone on for a long time, no matter how hard the situation is, 
we're declaring what God has said to us in the midst of it. Every day we get up and we declare what the promise God has given to us. We declare it. We, we proclaim it. Every single day we get up. And I've been doing that for a long time. And maybe things have not changed yet, but they're still holding on to that. They're still declaring it. And I've found more and more there's something powerful about the power of declaration. Declaring what God says rather than what our circumstances say. Rather than what our feelings say. Have you thought about it? When I declare what I feel, how many think that's not going to change anything? No matter how I feel, it's not going to change what's going on around me. Is that right? No matter what my circumstances say, no matter how much I talk and moan and groan about it, how many realize it doesn't change anything? Is that true? But when I really declare on a perpetual, continual basis what God says, it's only then things are going to change. Because the Bible says his word will not return unto you void, but will accomplish that which God sent it to do. Amen. Let's just close our eyes for a few moments. I just want to quickly do this this morning. It's just to spare our heads before him right now. Just get over to your heart the, the power of the cross right now, just as we close. I want you to do something. Maybe it's not easy for some of us today to do this, but I just felt very strongly this aspect of, of, of the curse. Jesus took our curse so that we might come into his blessings. And I just want to spend a few moments in your life. Are there certain aspects where I mentioned right there? You say, actually, that could be a curse at work. I believe the power of the cross has defeated that over your life. And what we're going to do in a moment, if you feel that's true of you, then we're going to pray a prayer that's going to maybe break that that will break that because of the power of the cross and the blood of Jesus. And so you're going to renounce it, any renounce, any, anything that the enemy has risen against you with. So we're going to pray a prayer all together. But that you just needs moments. And just, just stand, let's just stand. And Sometimes it's good to deal with these things because we're declaring the power of the cross right now. So that you, just stand very quickly. Maybe a few of us want to do that. That you, just simply stand. We're not going to do anything else. Just stand where you are. Thank you for listening to this free download from Delancey Elam Church. For more downloads or to contact us, please visit our website at delanceyelam.co.uk.